When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wise Cracks Movie Podcast. Show me the lawyers. Fuck. <laughs> That's a great Adam Driver impersonation. What's up, everybody? I'm Austin Hayden, and I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Raymond with his wonderful impersonations this week. Uh, hey, everyone. Not feeling so hot. Just got a COVID booster. So uh, very glad that we have a wonderful guest here today to help with some of the heavy lifting. No pressure to our guest, but introducing <laughs> Karsten Runquist. What's up, Karsten? Say what up to everybody. How's it going? It's great to be here. I was already nervous, and you just kind of elevated that. So. <laughs> Never mind. I'm feeling great. Action's yeah, off yeah, of yeah. you. Yeah, don't be nervous <laughs> at all. So for people who are listening, Karsten's a filmmaker, YouTuber, video essayist, movie analysis guy who puts out short videos on his channel. He's also made several short films, and he co-hosts the Karstcast podcast, which is a podcast talking about movies. And so um, we'll obviously have links to all of his social media stuff down below, and you can use the old Google machine, and I'm sure you can find him everywhere. And so for this week, he chose the film Marriage Story, which was the uh, 2019 uh, written and directed by Noah Baumbach. Was it a smash? Um, it definitely got a lot of buzz. It stars Adam Driver, Scarlett Johansson, and then it's got Laura Dern, Alan Alda, Ray Liotta, Merritt Weaver, Julie Haggerty, Wallace Shawn, etc., etc. And basically, this is an autobiographical tale of love, marriage, and divorce, where we follow Charlie and Nicole as they navigate through the tumult of their collapsing relationship, which gets super, super messy once custody issues take center stage. So that's the elevator pitch and what we'll do as we always do is we'll go around and do first impressions what was it like the first time we saw the film what's it been like on repeated viewings i do want to give everybody a reminder that we are live right now on youtube so if you're not listening to us live currently, remember that you can do so if you want. If you are listening to us live, there's a live chat down below. Make sure to contribute. What are your thoughts on this film? What do you think about the performances, which got all the praise? Obviously, Bombach always gets love for his writing and direction. So what do you think about Bombach, his legacy, his films, etc., etc.? And you can follow us on Twitter, smtm underscore pod. That's smtm underscore pod. All right, let's first throw it to Karsten since this was your choice, I don't know how many times you've seen this film, but what was your first impression when you were introduced to Marriage Story? What's it like now? And then why this film? Great. Yeah, I um, I didn't really know what to expect going into it. I guess the just what I heard is, you know, it's a movie about divorce and marriage. So I was expecting something pretty heavy, obviously, and it definitely is. But I was definitely not expecting it to be as kind of... I feel like comforting is a weird word, but it was mm. it was a lot warmer than I expected the first time I saw it. Um, and, like, just something that I, I knew, like, I would be re-watching, which is not also something I was expecting. Because mm. I, I just knew it was a lot of conversations, a lot of words, and usually those are just kind of too exhausting for me to revisit. But <laughs> this one, it's got, like, a little bit of everything in it. It's got, like, a little bit of humor, drama. Like, there's a musical element to it. So it, it was just... A much more full experience a lot or is a lot fuller than I expected and um, I think I remember just walking out of it the first time wanting to see it again pretty pretty immediately uh, hmm. so yeah yeah cool what about you Raymond um, I've always uh, enjoyed Noah Bombuck's films um, and I, I went to this one in theaters when it first came out and I, w- I was kind of bowled over by the performances that was the uh, uh, when we decided to, to cover this on the show, that was kind of the first thing in my head that jumped out at me. My, my recollection of this film was like, yeah, yeah. Two, two really stellar performances. But I had also, not that I had forgotten that there was a great supporting cast, but I had maybe forgotten how great it was. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I forgot that Wallace Shawn and Alan Alda and Ray Liotta were in this. <laughs> uh, I remembered Laura Dern being wonderful. Um, She's great. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it really does a great job. Um, as so many of uh, Bombuck's stories do, of uh, taking uh, a really complex, nuanced, but uh, 
grounded situation. There's nothing, you know, supernatural or uh, over the top about uh, a couple going through a messy divorce. This is the, the kind of thing that happens every day. Um, but he's, uh, he's capable of, uh, well, along with his actors, of course, he's, he's capable of finding some really, uh, really interesting drama and uh, keeps it compelling throughout despite uh, being over two hours. And more than anything on this rewatch, I, um, uh, I, I know this sounds weird to say about a movie from, what, two, three years ago? Uh, but I just, I, I miss dramas. I'm, you know, there mm. was a while there where Netflix had a great run of, of really solid, um, more adult-oriented dramas. They, they did, you know, a, a Nicole Holofsen uh, movie. Uh, I know they did um, a handful. They're like Private Life with I was um, just gonna say. Paul Giamatti. And Catherine, uh, Hahn. and Catherine Hahn. Yeah. Uh, so they they had a really great run for a while there, uh, and now it seems like they're kind of pivoting more towards big budget, more tent poly things. Um, maybe not exclusively, but uh, I digress. Uh, I really enjoyed this movie, and I'm excited to talk about it. It's so funny you talk about Private Life. I literally just did a scene from Private Life in my acting class last night. Very good. Um, yeah, and I had never seen the film, and then after doing this scene, I was like, oh shit, I need to see it, and then as I was watching Marriage Light, or Marriage Story, pri- Marriage Life, Private Story, um, as I was watching Marriage Story, <laughs> um, I did feel like a little bit of resonance about these sort of very m- upper middle class, maybe middle class bourgeois, very intelligent ways of talking about story, and that's what I was thinking about when I was watching it this time around, is that there is an articulate... Um, and very erudite way of of discussing the kind of successes and failures of relationship. And Noah Baumbach is right, kind of, that's his wheelhouse, maybe, right? And I was trying to figure out what it is that kind of bugs me about Baumbach whenever someone brings him up. When I hear about a film, I just don't get excited. It's like, I don't know why. Even though I love Francis Ha, but, you know, I didn't love Greenberg, Meyerowitz stories, with Squid and the Whale. Like... Like, they're okay, but for some reason I forget them. Like, like when, when I talk about films that impacted me or filmmakers that just get me, I don't think of him. And then I watch one of his films, and I'm like, yeah, actually, they're, I fucking love this, right? And so I was, watching, I was watching this, and there's something so grounded about it. And maybe it's because I am, like, a middle-class, uh, academic, educated type of person. So this type of story is like, oh, yeah, I... I really feel like the introspection, um, the way that they view the, the 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 kind of the relationship and what a relationship should be, and then maybe why, like the certain habits of, of why you might see a breakdown in communication. I'm like, oh, fuck. Like the analysis really appeals to my own sensibilities quite a bit, right? There's definitely a, a real strong analytical self-awareness um, in his films. And um, I think this film is actually maybe him at his peak, like what he can do. I really... I don't know if I can say I enjoy this film, but in a weird way, I really do because I think it's actually a quite honest introspection because obviously it is very autobiographical about his marriage with Jennifer Jason Lee. Um, and it is a very sort of um, honest, introspective take on their failures, maybe. And, and in some ways it's idealized. And of course, we'll talk about that because I think anything... Um, in the space of romance is going to come with some level of idealization so we can talk about the goods and the bads of idealizing but yeah i i think this is actually a really really excellent film i don't know if i would say it's phenomenal or i don't i don't know if it's something that i'm it's going to last with me but some of the performances might some of the scenes might and we can talk about that and like what is successful and then maybe what goes amiss and and maybe what maybe raymond and karsten can help psychoanalyze me and we can figure out like why i have this strange bias because there's Step something into our office yeah please so so definitely let's uh let's do that but before we start peeling things apart we've got to give a shout out to our sponsor for this week's episode which is skillshare skillshare is an online learning community where you can connect with other like-minded people and creatives and where you can explore projects that you are passionate about this is why skillshare is so cool because you can unleash your creativity and you can pursue your passions right from the convenience of your sofa or your bed or your kitchen counter or your favorite cafe, wherever it is that you like to do your work. They offer thousands of classes for creative and curious people on topics such as iPhone photography, film editing, drone filming, uh, classes on learning how to improve your productivity, stuff on activism and art, etc., etc. Pretty much if there's an idea that you've been wanting to explore, 
check out Skillshare and they've probably got a class ripe for you. Uh, so if you want to explore your creativity and if you want to connect with some cool people, go to Skillshare.com SMTM and you've got a free trial of their premium membership. So that's Skillshare.com SMTM and you'll get a free trial of the premium membership or you can click the link down in the show notes. All right, so let's start talking about this film. Let's start peeling it apart. Like, Karsten, what, what, is, what is it? Like, let's elaborate a bit more about this film that gives you a certain emotional response. What is the thing that stands out most? When someone mentions Marriage Story, what's the first thing that kind of pops into your head? Is it heartbreak? Is it hope? Is it the possibility of learning how to heal through things? Is it like the recognition that sometimes people just aren't compatible is it about like, hey, maybe we can learn to have better communication in relationships? I don't know. What is what is the thing that kind of grabs you? I think a lot of what stood out to me, especially the second time I watched it, uh, was what it had to say about like how perspective affects processing. Um, because I think you can't deny that this film is very Charlie, played by Adam Driver, heavy, um, who is extremely Noah Baumbach. He's got the same haircut and it's like this acclaimed <laughs> playwright, director, whatever. Um, but I, I wouldn't say it's like Baumbach kind of trying to write his own version of his own divorce, even though it is like heavily based off that. I think it's it's kind of exploring where a lot of Charlie's frustrations and anger came from and uh, what led to that very famous... Uh, climax scene of, of the him, scene? You know, punching yeah. the walls and stuff yeah everybody knows the scene um i think like that's the that whole that's the scene of the film and and i feel like for me the whole movie is kind of explaining what leads up to that moment and and uh understanding both why charlie felt that way and also like kind of the blindness that he felt the way i read it is that just like this is charlie processing the divorce and it's not that nicole isn't upset i just think that she did all of her processing before the movie started like uh mm. her her climax was when she kind of told him that they were like getting a divorce and like signed the papers and whatever and the rest of the movie is kind of charlie dealing with the the aftermath of that and i think it's just a very interesting movie in that respect of of how it um it's it's dealing with someone who didn't see this coming and someone who has already like made up their mind at the same time and I think it's just a very nuanced take on uh, loss even yeah maybe know. maybe if we say that that scene is like the climactic final battle per se the scene when he's reading her letter with his son on the sofa maybe that's the scene of like self-realization where yeah. he finally you know what I mean? And that's what kind of allows the ending to be the ending where you're like, well, maybe they will figure this out, you know, like they'll figure out how to do the shared custody thing. Maybe they can be involved in each other's life in some other capacity. But it's it's like I think that's really interesting because this is a very Charlie heavy film, even though both of them, I think, deserve um, a lot of credit. This is much more. I, I do think there's elements of like idealization or fantasy, but let's say it's in a lot of ways it's his efforts to justify to himself, to process himself, to understand himself what happened, one, in his attraction to her, two, in the breakdown, and then three, what the fuck do we do now? You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think Kirsten brings up an interesting point that, um, like you said, Scarlett Johansson's emotional journey, I think, precedes this movie in a more in a more important way than Adam Drivers does. Like, obviously, they both have lives before this. But the, it's kind of the, the Kramer versus Kramer problem that uh, mm. because Meryl Streep in that film just kind of disappears and you just see Dustin Hoffman trying to work things out with, I think their kid is named Henry, too, and that um, with their Henry, you you end up maybe feeling an impulse to to side with, Dustin Hoffman or in this you you feel the impulse maybe decide with Adam Driver um but it is uh it, it's definitely something that bears a lot of uh a lot of picking apart um because you you do bring up that great point there that uh everything that Adam Driver is going through right now that makes us you know empathize with him and and want to see things from his perspective not necessarily exclusively um but all of all of that mess all that messiness 
uh, is who knows that, that uh, I'm sure there's a very a very compelling prequel floating around uh, mm. out in the ether. There, everyone has a different version of where she's coming from before this movie starts. What do we think is the ultimate? cause or causes of the breakdown of the relationship from what we see like what is it that adam driver's character that charlie finally is processing hmm um i think on this on this viewing i was trying to go into it thinking to myself like i really want to try and watch it as much from scarlett johansson's perspective as possible because i think like i just said on the first viewing i was not necessarily that I went away from it taking sides, but you do spend a lot of time in Adam Driver's corner just by nature of the film's construction. And you you brought up that, that really lovely scene near the end where uh, he and his son are reading the letter together, which, you know, may be a little bit contrived, maybe a little bit too <laughs> convenient, but it's pretty emotionally effective, um, yeah. you know, once they get into the meat of it. And they don't, they don't overcook it. Uh, they don't have... Him and Scarlett Johansson share a, a teary-eyed glance towards each other at the end of it. They just cut out of it. Um, but uh, all that to say, I think it's it's one of the things that I, I think initiated the divorce, or at least on this viewing, is that sense that you get that Adam Driver has a very confined idea of of what constitutes love and what constitutes marriage. And I think it's in that final scene where he realizes like, oh, we don't necessarily have to be married to still love each other and support each other. And, and granted, they both make a lot of mistakes along that journey. But, uh, you know, by the end of it, you do see him really start to, I think, appreciate who she is as a person, as an artist, as a being unto herself, as opposed to what she says earlier, that she always sees herself as an extension of him. Yeah, to me, that was something that was really key in her discussion. I believe it's with Laura Dern, right? Where she's basically articulating some clear codependency, right? Like she basically says she has nothing, just hers. She thought maybe when she had Henry that that, that like he could also be hers, even though it was a, a team thing. Everything she did theatrically as a performer was always related to his work. And she felt, for lack of a better term, she felt castrated right? So she felt a little bit like she never had anything to be able to express her freedom with going to LA. LA for her was always her like I always think of Captain Jack Sparrow in the fucking, um, with the Black Pearl okay. symbol, right? The Black okay. Pearl. What did it symbolize that's for her, him? That's her it white whale, essentially. That's her white whale, yeah, yeah. For me, yeah. growing up in Orange County, it was the car, right? Like, once you get the car, then you have your freedom, right? And for so many people, it's like, once you get enough money, then you're gonna have the freedom, right? That's the thing that, like, psychologists and, and like, uh, relationship coaches always talk about, that people are always like, what's the thing that's gonna get you the thing, and then you think that's gonna make you happy? For her, she never was able to have access to those things, and I think that she never really had, they never really had um, the appropriate framework set up so that they could actually communicate those things. And you see that in that one courtroom scene where they're like talking to each other um, or maybe it's That's the arbitration. That's a fucking great scene. But like those those scenes where, <laughs> where they're they like. they cut out to everyone else having to just watch them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like they clearly they clearly had implicit contracts for one another and they didn't communicate what they actually wanted. And so because of that, resentment builds up, frustration, you lose a little bit of yourself, and then it comes back years later and it's too late to repair at that point. And this is one of the dangerous kind of traps of creating implicit contracts with somebody rather than actually communicating what your needs are, what your desires are, you know? And I think you see that building through this. And and that's why it's so touching to me because that shit is so, so prevalent in how we relate to people, whether it's business relationships or romantic relationships or familial relationships, whatever, is we're not very good at actually communicating the desires of our heart. And then, and then we're not actually good at really working through when we do communicate those things. We're not very good on the other end of receiving that. So that's kind of... And this movie is, like, as much as it is about divorce or love and marriage, this movie is about communication and, like, the, the complexities of communication and the nuances of communication. And like you said, the sort of implicit ideas surrounding the way that we communicate. Like, how many times throughout this movie does Adam Driver say, like, well, no, I, we never, like, sat down and, and agreed to do this. We never signed a contract or whatever, but we yeah. we talked about it. But or was, it was understood. Line, quote unquote. He has that yeah. great line where he goes, "We talked about putting a credenza next to the couch, and we haven't done that." Like, yeah. there, there's just all these weird things that, like, 
once you start getting lawyers involved in it where it's like, oh, she says something about like, oh, I, I had a bit too much to drink. I can barely stand up. And she's just saying it in passing because they have this warm mm. convivial relationship or this familiarity with each other. And then all of a sudden that becomes this damning piece of evidence in a courtroom. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it is it is one of those things that like, it's kind of fascinating to to see a conversation like dissected and picked apart and splayed out and then re like reassembled by four different people all of whom have four different perspectives and four different objectives being like yeah. him her and both of their respective lawyers yeah yeah lawyers are fucking brutal sorry <laughs> Kirsten. yeah no i mean that's exactly <laughs> what i was gonna say um no i i do think that's what makes um kind of like looping back to what you were saying austin i think that's what makes this uh adam driver's story uh because scarlett johansson I think, or Nicole, I should say. Um, I feel like she is the one that's kind of like escaping in the beginning of this film and like getting that freedom that you were talking about. And Adam Driver, to like answer the original question, um, I think like what failed this relationship to begin with was the fact that he was just not willing to really compromise um, and just kind of wanted their marriage to be his way. And the whole movie is basically him figuring out how to... I mean, get it his way himself. Um, and yeah, I just think that's why that that's at least to me why I actually prefer the fact that it's told through Charlie's perspective for the most part. Um, is he selfish? Is he is he actually the, the kind of quote unquote bad guy? Does he actually take more from her than he gives to her? I I wouldn't say so. He definitely has his flaws the same way she has her flaws. You know, I mean, he makes mistakes, but I wouldn't necessarily say he's like, a selfish uh bad person i i think like you said there was a lack of communication that led to things getting out of control the way they ended up being but um you know i think uh for as as much as it feels like nicole wasn't being listened to it starts to, starts to feel like um he gets his own kind of taste of that uh especially once lawyers start getting involved i feel like he um I don't know. He he's feels very misunderstood for a lot of the movie, which I think is key. I don't know. And I also think that even if even if he is selfish, and I think you you could reasonably make the argument that he is, or uh, maybe the word is uncompromising. Um, you know, if you want to nuance the language a little bit, I don't necessarily think that um, uh, you know flights of of selfishness or uh, bullheadishness, or, or however you want to define it, doesn't necessarily make him a bad guy. Like, this is a movie, it's it's not about, like, good versus evil mm -hmm. in the traditional sense. Like, the movie doesn't have to have a villain. Like, if you if you wanted to hang that around somebody, the lawyers maybe it would are the be villain. Laura Dern and, and Ray Liotta. <laughs> they are the villain. <laughs> and, then, and then Alan Alda, who's just like... He's doing, trying. <laughs> it reminds yeah. me the social network line where she goes, you're not an asshole, you're just trying so hard to be. Alan Alda is like the yeah, definition yeah. of that where it's like... Or maybe Sicario is a, a better uh, analogy where Benicio Del Toro tells Emily Blunt, this is a land of wolves and you are not a wolf. Yes. And I just think that when I'm looking at Alan Alda and he's sitting at the table and he goes, you know, if I were representing you, and yeah, Adam yeah, yeah. like, you are representing me. Because um, it, it, is, it, it is just so like heartbreaking and frustrating to watch this and see the, the best laid plans and the best intentions that the couple has just completely go by the wayside when they both start thinking about themselves more than the other person or more appropriately about their kid. And I think that's a really important part of the dynamic that we can't leave out of the conversation, which is that the, the way that like, even if they have both convinced themselves that they're doing what's right for him, like once again, Adam Driver doesn't listen very well. His son is constantly telling him like, I like it better here. I like my school here. I like my friends here. I'm with my, I, I get to be with my family. I get to be with mom, yada, yada, yada. And every single time he just goes, well, no, what about New York? What about your friends in New York? What about this, that, and the other? And it's just like, I'm, I'm a kid. Like I'm, I'm going to adapt. I'm, you know, I've been dropped here. It's a nice change of pace. Maybe I want to come back to New York later, but I'm not capable of articulating that. And it's kind of my parents' responsibility to be able to read between those lines. And instead, 
Adam Driver has a tendency to kind of use his child as a cudgel with regards to the relationship and or if not a cudgel then at least a bit of a smokescreen that you know he wants to be in New York he's made no illusions about that uh but whenever they talk about it it's it's never like I want to be in New York I mean he does kind of say that at times but it, it's more, much more about, like, we are a New York family, whereas Scarlett Johansson is like, dude, we're not a family at all. We're, this relationship is ending. Yeah, I wonder, when I'm watching, when I watch films like this, I oftentimes think that there's a fundamental problem in our even analyzing it um, within the English language. Because we only have one word that we use to cover a bunch of different things, this love word, right? But... Love can mean so many different things, and it's expressed in so many different ways, and I think it oftentimes complicates our ability to communicate, whereas in other languages, like for example in Greek, there are multiple terms, right, that communicate different senses of love. Familial love, obviously people would be familiar with the word phileo, which is where you get the name Philadelphia from, which is brotherly love, right? Um, the city of brotherly love, and that's what they call it. Um, you've got agape, which is a sort of like unconditional type of love. And then you've got eros, and eros is like a passionate, um, erotic desire is where the word that comes from, but it's really more of like a desirous love, right? And one of the things that I think is interesting is, and then there's storge. So, but then the, one of the things that in- interesting is with, with like the development of romantic love from, you know, what, 12th century, 13th century onwards, is we kind of have conflated in English um, the romantic, passionate desire with other forms of love. And I think, I don't remember if it was Raymond or, or Karsten that, that one of you said it a minute ago, but that just because the marriage fell apart, I think it was Raymond, it doesn't mean that they can't still love each other in other capacities, right? And I think that's something that's really interesting to think about is, is is what started when she says that she fell in love with him like two minutes after she saw him. Is that is that what we would think of as being love? Is that even worthy of the word love? Or is that just like some sort of like intense desire, passion, lust, something along those lines? Infatuation, right? That's not a bad thing either, right? But is it worthy of this term, this idea that we invest so much in that's supposed to like transform us and all you need is love and love changes everything and if we just love each other, it'll save the world and all this. Like I find it, it I think it can be very confusing because we don't really have the tools and the resources to kind of navigate through these different concepts that are meant to represent our complex feelings and the complex um, the, the complex mess of being in relationship with people. And I think that this film is actually a really good sort of um, expression of the difficulties of navigating through erotic love, passion, desire, lust. I mean, what does Laura Dern say at one point? Um, in the first meeting, she says something like, you know, at first they, they love you and they want to take your clothes off and then you have kids and then they just kind of forget all about us or something like that, you know? And it's this, the, the transition then between an object of desire to now what? An object of familial companionship. And that shift can be very, very difficult to understand, deal with, approach. And I think this film does a really good job of kind of like presenting that. What do you think? Yeah, I mean... Not to cite a completely different movie, but it is kind of a coincidence. Um, one of my favorite lines in Lady Bird is the f- when she's like, aren't love mm. and attention kind of the same thing? Uh, and I see a mm. lot of that in this movie. And I think it, it kind of helps your point that it's like they still love each other by the end because the film makes the case from the get-go uh, when like the opening of the film is just them kind of like hashing out everything they love about each other and like all these little tiny quirks they have and Hmm. he cries at movies or whatever um and it's revealed that that's like something they're reading at uh like some therapy uh, appointment or or something um yeah and and it's just i think that's such a lovely moment because it's like there's clearly so much more love on display here and it kind of makes the case that everything that happens throughout the movie afterwards is more of like it's a lot of logistics and lawyers money kind of getting in the way of of what's been there the whole time um and i think i i just think it's a really great way of starting the movie yeah and there's this there's this moment too like when when her power goes out and the gate won't shut and this is after they've they're going through the divorce and she calls him and then he comes over 
right? And she's like, I'm sorry I called. And he's like, no, don't worry about it. He's clearly annoyed and she's clearly kind of embarrassed and feels kind of like I'm taking advantage. But there's still a sense that both of them have care for each other, right? And this is that kind of, maybe that word storge in Greek. There's care. And is that a type of love? It's like, well, yeah, because he's still there in the middle of the night. Of course, I'm going to come over and try to help you figure out this, you know, problem that you're in. So there's something really kind of nice about seeing that persist, you know? Yeah, there, there's a line that's getting discussed a lot in the chat right now. The the scene in which they have their sort of knockdown, drag out, uh, nothing left unsaid conversation. And Adam Driver screams something to the effect of, you know, I... I hope you die every day oh. I wake up and I hope you die in a way in a way that wouldn't hurt Henry or, or that like you would get sick and blah, 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 blah. Um, and there is that question. I think you bring up an interesting point, Austin. It reminds me of um, uh, I read this thing years and years ago about uh, certain cultures that don't have a word for pink versus a word for red. And if you show them red and pink side by side, they're like, all right, two red cards, whatever. <laughs> um yeah. And I do I do wonder how much the our, our notion of what constitutes love uh those distinctions those subtle distinctions how those get bred into us at an early age you you talk about uh the difference between familial love uh and uh romantic love and how those may get conflated in a long-term relationship and I think that's all borne out in that uh, that that screaming scene. You know, to be able to say something that vile to someone whom you ostensibly love, it it, it does. Uh, a lot of people are saying in the chat, it really does <laughs> does kind of strain credulity that these two were ever really in love, or at the very least, that he ever felt true love for her. Because uh, you know, even if you stop loving someone, or your marriage dissolves, or what have you, like you, you brought up this, this wonderful scene where he comes over and helps close the gate and does her a favor. In most circumstances, now, I've never been married, I've never been divorced, so I can't speak to that, but I imagine uh, I have been in relationships that ended, and there's never been a time when I wanted to see a person in pain. It's just that, you know, maybe we were both causing each other pain and we need to extricate ourselves from that situation. So what, what do you guys think when he... Um, when he says that to her, when when he screams that in her face, do you think that is something that invalidates his sort of uh, emotional investment in in their relationship up until that point? Do you think it's kind of telling on him in a way that he doesn't intend, or do you think it's just a moment where he's trying to hurt someone and he says something that maybe he doesn't believe uh, just because he knows it'll cut her down? I don't like want to believe that he <laughs> believes that you know yeah um <laughs> yeah, i just yeah. think at, at that point he's lost so much and i feel like so much of what made him as a person is is kind of gone like a lot of his work is irrelevant at that point his kid is like not paying attention to him and and it's kind of like it, it's it's just not looking good um and i think that's more of just wanting to hurt her in some way to get back at her but i don't think he he actually believes that what he's saying um i i, I couldn't tell you but it i'm hoping not <laughs> uh yeah i mean at one level it's like uh you know the, the that you can hurt the people you love the most right and when you're in one of those situations and it starts to escalate you start staying saying shitty stuff you know they start talking about their parents and you're mothering like your mother and then you're like your father and they're like what the fuck don't you they know exactly how to cut each other because they were so close to each other so i think that there's part of that that you kind of become quote unquote irrational right that you kind of go to a level almost of mania where it's just uh pure you're not concerned about what the other person might feel or think when you say something and then second you don't really even weigh um all of the consequences of what you're saying you don't make all the connections about what you're saying and stuff just comes fucking flying out because you are just simply mad and maybe your intention is just fuck you or your intention is just hurt and how it comes out maybe is is almost not inconsequential but it's secondary so that's kind of what i think i think that he's flying off the handle and he's angry that doesn't mean that he has not thought like i want her to just go away but that's what i i take it as i just wish this ended like I wish this would like I wish if if this all just went away and whether that means you die or whatever but in a way I just want you gone which doesn't mean he wants her 
this woman that he actually does care about to die necessarily. But what he means is, I want this to go away. And I think that's really, really what he's trying to say. Because even the way that he qualifies it, like in a way that won't hurt Henry in a a way that like, if only you could die without causing everyone who loves you trauma, (laughs) (laughs) wouldn't that be wonderful? Right. Um, I do. I do want to shout out uh, Jason Seeley in the chat uh, also pointed out that uh, uh, Adam Driver immediately realizes he's gone too far beyond even what he wanted. And he Mm. apologizes in that scene. And uh, he also said earlier. That he totally he totally agrees with you, Karsten, uh, about how much of the story displays the logistics and the business of the whole thing getting in the way of something real. Uh, I just wanted to to cite those two because um, uh, I think he brings up a good point, and also I, I just wanted to shout out Jason because he's always offering really really thoughtful contributions to our chat. So uh, thank you, Jason. Um, but I, I think that 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 scene is. For better and worse, that scene is the scene that Adam Driver has been pressing for the entire movie. To Jason's point, that is the scene where they both finally agree, okay, let's drop the fucking lawyers, let's let's just get in here, air our fucking grievances, get everything said so we can finally move on. And then, because that obviously takes place near the end of the movie, the next scene that we see scarlett johansson interacting with laura dern they've already settled and the settlement that they come to is essentially exactly what they had agreed to do at the beginning of the movie except now they're gonna be in la instead of new york and the entire fucking movie just gets reduced to adam driver decides that he's just gonna move to la for a little while that's right and they spent a shitload of money on lawyers and it's yeah it's it's kind of absurd it's It's kind of absurd yeah it's it it would be funny if it weren't so heartbreaking that it's like uh but like you said karsten and, and like jason points out in the chat it really is just a matter of like we just need to be real with each other for the most painful conversation of our life and we'll be able to get through this thing and and you know start seeing the you know the the end of this tunnel yeah, it's almost like the acceptance of futility or something like that, right? Um, but that, that's what I wonder is, is this film, like, is this is this like a warning about... Okay, I, I feel like there are a few ways we can take this film. One, we can take it as like a, hey, like, um, we really have problems with communication. If we, could, if we could develop really lovely and healthy communication habits, then we won't run into these problems down the road. That's one way to say it. I feel like there's another way to look at this that's like all marriages and all relationships are fucking doomed because humans cannot communicate. And this is just the uh, futility and absurdity of life. This is going to happen. So how do we deal with the trauma then? And it could be, of course, a combination of all of these. But I wonder, like, is this film... Like, is this a tragic film about, like, humanity writ large that, like, no, modern relationships, you know, um, contemporary relationships are doomed? Or is this kind of like a, hey, no, guess what? We can do this together. We just have to really fucking figure out how to learn from the mistakes standing on the shoulders of people who have come before us, so to speak. I mean, it'd be an awkward time if it was all about how relationships are doomed and he's married to Greta Gerwig and I I don't know if things would be going well in that house if that was what it was um but no I think it it is kind of a a little bit hopeful by the end of the movie I think it kind of pushes the idea that this is very much like a a marriage is like a two-person situation and these were two people that weren't really 100% there for one another um, especially Adam Driver. He like wasn't fully done, I think, growing or, or learning how to do that for a person uh, by the time they were already in the marriage. Um, and, you know, I think there is hope for, for both parties here. Um, and, and yeah, I, I don't think it's, it's preaching that, that love is entirely doomed, but it is saying that divorce is pretty <laughs> shitty. It's yeah, <laughs> It's expensive. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm curious what you guys think about, uh, if not what it says about marriage, then what it says about art. Because I think there's certainly a, a not-so-subtle implication that maybe the the thing holding their relationship together, or not necessarily, I think that maybe implies that their relationship was strained for its whole duration, but maybe the thing that really did serve as the cornerstone of their relationship 
was their working relationship that they perhaps admired each other more as artists than they did as people uh, as as partners uh, mm. and Austin maybe this gets back into some of the stuff you were talking about earlier that they have a, a respect and a love for each other as collaborators and and they don't know how to distinguish that from um, their romantic lives or their uh, their their home lives but what do you guys think Ooh, Carson you want to yeah. jump in um damn that's a really great question actually um I do think that's uh you know what I, I I'm gonna toss it over to you actually because I'm still I'm still kind of okay. processing that <laughs> yeah yeah let it let it percolate <laughs> I I've thought about this a lot um I have been in relationships with artists who were collaborators and then I have been in relationships with people who were not in any sort of artistic capacity and I think that it's like a two-edged sword right or um that there's kind of it's it's like two sides to the coin it's like the thing that can also be the thing that builds you that can be the attraction can also be the thing that actually can cause resentment if you feel like you are losing yourself and and i and i hate using like pop psychological terms i'm not a huge fan of like you know you got to just be true to yourself and do you kind of thing i think that it comes from a kind of icky place of radical individualism under the kind of like the contemporary consumerist regime but that doesn't mean that there aren't healthy ways of self-exploration and self-expression and finding your autonomy and 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 being able to be in tune with the desires of your heart and then learning how to express that in your career, your passions, your hobbies, etc., and learning how to do that in relationship with someone um, is very tricky because I think what you see in this relationship is in one sense they are passionate about each other because they find each other so attractive in their talents. But she clearly feels like she never had anything that was hers. So she always felt like she was giving more than she was getting back. But the thing that kept them going was that she kind of had that carrot dangling in front of her, which was this this thing that was potentially always going to be freedom, you know, the thing in L.A., L.A.'s coming, or I'm going to have my moment eventually. I'm compromising right now, and, and I fucking love this guy because he's amazing, and I want his vision to be realized, and I want his stories to come to life, and, I, and I'm so glad that we are building this success together, but at the same time, there was still something kind of missing, and then he kind of also says a little bit, you know, in the big knockout fight, like, like, yeah, I had all this success, but there was something missing in terms of passion. Like, he's like, I was in my 20s. Of course I wanted to fuck other people. He's like, but I didn't because I loved you. So then he feels like, at least, whether or not this is his self-justification, he feels like he was compromising, too, on certain things for her. So there's this really difficult dance, I think, that we have to kind of navigate. You you also get the sense that he maybe was playing a role for the early years of, uh, ah, of their careers, that to yeah. him it's like, oh, it's the serious artist thing, the serious yes. director thing to, to marry young and and be in love with my muse and what Your have muse. you. And, I did think about that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and by the end of the film, you get the sense that uh, like Scarlett Johansson says, after she's been she's been nominated for a, a directing Emmy, I think, um, and she goes, "Oh yeah, now I know what you were obsessed with." And you do maybe get the idea that like, oh, are these two folks maybe a little too much alike? And the validation or the artistic release that she craved was always going to be subordinate to his vision. Um, you know, who knows? Do you, do you think? Uh, you guys said that there, or at least Karsten, you, you said that you think there's some hope at the end of this. Do you think maybe uh, when things run their course that these two could, uh, could, could find some happiness together as directors with their own separate visions working in their own disciplines? I, I think... That <laughs> I, <laughs> what, is, what is Marriage Story 2 about, Karsten? Yeah. We're all dying to know. No, I, I don't think they, they would get back together, mostly because I think uh, Charlie's kind of grown out of it um i think his his idea of looking at what she does kind of like separate from him it, it kind of dissolves by the end of the movie i think we've kind of danced around the the being alive uh number in the end there in the bar which is him i i, I don't know how i i mean there's like the surface read of like just the lyrics of he's like kind of learning how it feels to like be a person again but i think it's also him performing is there's something powerful about that too especially the more you've talked about like how he he 
looked at her as his muse or, or whatever. I think him kind of putting himself mm. in a vulnerable position like that, I think is, uh, I don't see him like going back to the same type of relationship that they had before, which is, I think the only thing he got out of that. Um, yeah. I think there is a problem with that kind of tendency of, of us, particularly dude creatives, writers, directors, that they do, um, exploit in some ways a muse type of figure we talked about it with um the eternal sunshine episode where we talked about like you know the manic pixie dream girl sort of thing that that this is a person that's going to inspire me that's going to motivate me and you know people there's a guy named Stephen pressfield who wrote a really like kind of i think a really helpful book called the war of art not the art of war but the war of art Um, Art yeah it's great and he talks about like how every morning he says he says the prayer of the muse to descend upon him right like this is something that we need we need the inspiration from the heavens or from whatever it is that that you believe the source is right and we we call upon this we need this thing that's going to inspire us and dudes a lot of times straight dudes a lot of times um exploit the power of eros, the power of eroticism, the power of passion, the power of desire in the form of an idealized person or in the form of the idealized body or the idealized other. And I think that that he absolutely started the relationship from that perspective, which isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. I think we all idealize, we all fantasize. Um, it's just about like kind of working through that in a way that is healthy and that ultimately is adjusted to mutual respect that, that becomes the real issue. And that's what they're, that's where they failed, I think. And you can see that funneled through his opening monologue where he says one of the things that he loves most about her is how she translates the ideas in his head. And I think it kind of cuts yeah. to the, the, um, the, the dialogue at that point. And he goes, do it standing <laughs> but also crawling or something like that. And it takes her a second, but um, I just wanted to double back since Karsten kind of popped the top on that, um, uh, the being alive scene, which I think is, uh, you know, if the, if the argument between the two of them is the, the film's centerpiece, that being alive uh, scene really is kind of the, the dessert. And I, I just wanted to say my, my favorite moment in that entire scene is when he, he gets up and he does the first verse of it. And then he heads back to his his booth all just kind of like, oh, you know, whatever. That was that was fun. I'm being goofy. But then as soon as he's about to sit down, he's like, actually, you know what? Fuck this. I need to get this out. And he goes back up to the microphone and he does the entire goddamn song. And then it it never shows the audience at that point because they're all kind of humoring him at the beginning. They give him a smattering of applause after his first verse. But then by the end of it, the room's just quiet. And I imagine if you did get a reaction shot of all of his friends, they'd be like, we don't know how he's feeling right? like we don't we don't know if this is if this is something we should be encouraging is this something he just needs to get out is this just his his big cathartic howl but um it is it is a really lovely scene and i think that's as much as anything in this film because that is the final big moment uh in the movie probably one of the scenes that stuck most with like academy voters when uh, when adam driver rocketed to the top of people's lists it was certainly uh, something that stuck out in my head before rewatching it. Hmm. I do want to say that uh, our our amazing producer Matt put some notes together for us, discussion points, and one of the ones because we're a movie podcast, we got to talk about the impact that movies have on relationships. And apparently, there was a recent U.S. study that found that making couples watch and then discuss movies about relationships halved divorce rates. So it's a more effective, and, if, and then the argument was that it was a more effective treatment than counseling. So. I guess if you're a couple, divorce you rate should... used to be a hundred percent in America, and, and, now then, it's 50%. and then that study, that study <laughs> broke out. So, so watch Marriage Story, watch Private, was it Private Lives? Watch these Private Life, um, you know, and then discuss it with your partner, and it can increase uh, your ability to communicate with them. I don't know, just a really intriguing thing. Maybe we can put the link to that down in the in the show notes as well. So those kinds of things are always I, I, I are can always only speak for myself but uh, my girlfriend and I she maybe she'll get mad at me for saying this I doubt it but whenever we watch TV we're constantly like <laughs> pausing and checking in with each yeah, other yeah, and yeah. not even not <laughs> even like rich nuanced character explorations we'll be watching like the bachelorette and we'll pause it and go okay this is really <laughs> fucked up what he's doing right <laughs> like, we'll, yeah, yeah. we'll have a whole conversation about how like this is okay this is the emotionally adjusted way to respond to this right. moment in uh, in bachelor at tv history and then once again it's in the ether as soon as we press play 
Exactly. Yes, it's, I think that's a wonderful thing to do. Um, I, I will say too. So another uh, thing, there's a a great like relationship therapist. Her name's she's like really famous. She's a Belgian psychotherapist named Esther Perel. People can watch her YouTube videos, um, and things like that. But I guess she says that actually one of the best things that couples can do to like strengthen their relationship is dancing. You can dance together. Um, so I don't know out there. Fucking take up a ballroom dancing class, or do some jazz, or do some some sort of a uh, swing dancing classes or something like that do with it, your partner. Do it with your sister and mom at a house party where everyone <laughs> is just obliged. That was a cute scene. That was a cute scene. There and, okay, let's talk. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about this. Um, Noah Baumbach uh, as a filmmaker. What are his characteristic kind of fingerprints, um, and why? Why is he either kind of why is he successful or why why does he go amiss sometimes? What do we think about him? Uh, the thing that I will say, what I love about his filmmaking is it feels very theatrical to me, right? Is it feels like I'm just getting an intimate, um, like an, an, an aperture opened onto people and humanity. And his films to me are very, for lack of a better term, just human. And I think for me, that's one of the things I love about the theater even in its absurdist avant-garde elements, there's something because you're immersed and you're there with people. So there's something just affective. So for me, that's what I love about him. What do you guys think about Baumbach as a, as a creator? Uh, I think the same way. I think he's a very autobiographical filmmaker, even if he denies that a lot. Um, he's If you go back to like The Squid and the Whale or Meyerowitz stories, and this is the biggest example marriage story it's like he he's pulled a lot from his own life in all his own films and it's doesn't read just as like retelling what has happened in his own life but i feel like he pokes fun at a lot of his insecurities or like is able to get extremely vulnerable with a lot of how he depicts his own life and i think that's very i i he's a very trustworthy filmmaker for me like i just i trust kind of a lot of the way the the actors are are saying a certain thing or, or or kind of like what he has to say about something uh it just all comes across very mature even like some of his earlier stuff that he's clearly like grown from i feel like the squid and the whale i think that's the name of it is like the perfect uh prequel to this because it's it's kind of like a <laughs> a watered down marriage story and it before he kind of experienced a lot of what he went through but um yeah that that movie goes to some really emotionally violent places, though, in a way that, like, there's less screaming in that, but in a way I think it's a little bit more distressing at times. Um, and I I really like Noah Baumbach's work. Uh, you you mentioned Meyerowitz stories, and I think um, I think it was one of your contemporaries, Carson, a uh, nerd writer, who who did a, a really good video essay about... Such a good video. Yeah, he, he, he did a great video about how Noah Baumbach writes dialogue, and even if at times it feels a little stagey, he, he does this great thing. He does it in Marriage Story as well, where each new cast member will present a new plate to spin in a given conversation where Adam Driver comes in and he starts cutting up some chicken, and then... Uh, Scarlett Johansson comes in and she's trying to have a serious conversation but then her mom comes in and he wants to hug and kiss her and so he he gets all of these like threads going and then their son is pooping in the bathroom and they got to check in on that and then the sister comes in with a pie in her hands and all that stuff could be like in the hands of a lesser filmmaker it could be really farcical in the worst way it could be it could be a little bit madcap and unfocused but he does have the knack for like, even if you can feel it being constructed, I don't think there are a lot of other filmmakers that even try to to do that, that try to get to like the the naturalism of uh, of complexity and nuance in a conversation. The way that, you know, it makes me think of like a little bit John Cassavetes, a little bit Paul Mazursky, you know, there just aren't a lot of filmmakers working today within this idiom. So even if you don't really like the the milieu of a, a Noah Bombach movie, that he has a tendency to make, it's kind of like Woody Allen too, a little bit. Yeah. He he kind of has a tendency to make movies about himself and the sort of people yeah. with whom he socializes. Um, you know, you're you're not going to find like a super dark night of the soul. These are all extremely white people with extremely white problems for the most part. But 
uh, I do think he's his work is worth studying because uh, he he is great at finding those those natural rhythms of conversation, uh, and I don't feel as though his movies really really ever lag for that. There, there's always a a, a real attention and an energy. His his dialogue crackles in a good way. Yeah, I think if you want a good snapshot or a good like foray into examining artistic representations of white, middle-class, upper-middle-class, educated Americans, it's like Cassavetes, Woody Allen, I think Bombach is our contemporary, but also someone like Charlie Kaufman, who I think would be the kind of, so he's Noah Bombach, but neurotic, you know, whereas Noah Bombach is a bit, a little bit less solipsistic. Right, um, Bombach is is a little bit more intentionally relational. Where I think Charlie Kaufman is like, "Fuck, how do I connect with other people at all?" Whereas Bombach is a little bit more like, "Oh fuck, okay, let's deal with the difficulties of connecting with other people." Right. So there's a little bit of a, a dif- difference there. But I think that there is something really interesting, which is which is something that we can I think um, value in his work. But also there's definitely then kind of a very small sample size we're getting on what the human experience is that is very sort of classed, right? Like this is definitely middle, upper middle class, coastal elite type of, uh, of experience here. And it doesn't really give us the panoply of, you know, um, like a working class experience. Um, and so I think that's something that, I don't know if we take anything away from Baumbach because of that, but I think it's interesting to at least be aware of, even though it's a great aperture, it's a very particular aperture, if that makes sense. Uh, I'm curious, guys. Uh, Karsten, you you wrote a, a very lovely kind of glowing review of this on your letterbox. It was uh, it was brief, but uh, very, very carefully considered. I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about uh, Noah Baumbach's filmography as a whole. Is this the top of the list? I mean, as a director, yes. Uh, I, I do know he wrote part or he helped write fantastic mr fox which will always be like (laughs) and and i think especially revisiting um a lot of his work and and keeping that in mind while watching mr fox i'm like yeah there's a lot of noah bombeck in that movie weirdly enough um it's just it's kind of poking fun at a dad who doesn't seem to understand his family at all and is very selfish in his own ways Hmm. but um i would say this is uh definitely kind of I, i forget who said it earlier, but this is kind of him at his peak. Um, it's, it's kind of like the movie I feel like he's was born to do. And, uh, which I don't know if he'd like me saying that <laughs> movie about divorce is your calling, but, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think, this is good <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree. This and Francis Ha are my two favorites of his. And I forget about Francis Ha, like the particulars of it, but I remember watching it. I've only seen it once, but I really loved it at the time. It had kind of a big impact on how I thought that we could tell stories in cinema. Um, Just a very stripped down, simple, just give me a camera, a script, and some performers, you know? And I was like, cool. Like, like I love that. Like, the Dogma films are my favorite films, really. Um, And I I love that. That tracks. Mom, yeah, <laughs> you are the kind of sicko that would tune in. Yeah. Um, so, what about you? I I think this is this is certainly some of his best work. Um, but I, I'll always have a soft spot for Squid and the Whale. I haven't seen that in quite some time, but that was the first one of his that I ever watched, and it is just it's so brutal. It really stuck with me and made an impression on me. But uh, you also mentioned Francis Ha. I I think. If uh, if I had to choose, it would between be between probably Francis Ha and Squid and the Whale. I, I, and I agree for all the same reasons, Austin. It is, um, I, I think I mentioned Scorsese on our last Patreon episode talking about how uh, John Cassavetes, when uh, Shadows came out, Scorsese and all of his film film school buddies said like, oh, we were just ruined when we left the theater. We couldn't even talk to each other. We couldn't even look at each other because we knew that like there were no excuses now. We had to go and make a movie. And uh, Francis Ha has a lot of that energy. It's uh, it's a great movie that that represents uh, the independent spirit in contemporary filmmaking. So if you haven't seen that one, highly recommend it. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. 
Absolutely. Well, I said we wrap up the chat there about marriage story, but before we go, we're going to do a quick dive into our mailbag where um, we read out some of your emails or we listen to your voicemails. If you want to call, you can call us and leave us a hopefully short-ish uh, voicemail so that we can actually play it and address it on the show here. It's one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. That's one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven, or you can email us at movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. Let's jump into a voicemail that we've got about Dune. Yo, uh, this is Trey. Yeah, I just want to talk about Dune. Yeah, obviously there's so much stuff to talk about that it's kind of hard to uh, to wrap it all up in a quick like one hour podcast, but. Uh, I want to look at the uh, the modern political landscape that Herbert's book sort of found itself in. I found that the, the most recent adaptation, obviously, being this Dune, uh, was sort of, I, I don't know, I just, I felt overly influenced by the uh, colonialism and the imperialism, which, you know, as a lefty, you know, is stuff that I like to see, but it totally wasn't related to what I felt was Herbert's intention, which I see as very environmentalist, very uh, eugenics-based. But yeah, I, 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 I just wanted to ask, what do you guys see in terms of, um, is it possible to adapt a film taking somebody else's political viewpoint from, you know, the 60s or the 50s or something like that? Is it possible to adapt that into something that makes sense today while still holding true to the original? Or does it have to be impacted by the current political landscape? Uh, love you guys. Uh, love to hear your answer. Awesome. Thanks, Trey. What do we think, gents? Um, I, I've got a quick response. I think the, the two sort of areas that he's bringing up with regards to imperialism versus uh, environmentalism, I think they're kind of inextricably linked. Um, you know, the, the what's the, uh, I can't remember who coined the term, but people have always said, like, the Middle East is where empires go to die because, like, Western imperial nations have been trying to steal their oil forever. Um, and, I mean, this was this was written in the 60s when, like, BP was in, in the process of doing that. I think, like, the, the Iraq... Uh, petroleum institution i can't remember if it was like the ipc or the ipi which today is still like owned by bp i'm pretty sure um so sadly not a whole lot has changed with regards to that stuff but i don't want to get too deep into the weeds during the last five <laughs> minutes of a podcast <laughs> about a noah bombach movie yeah 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 carson yeah, do you i think mean you got any thoughts on I, this it obviously depends i guess on the book but if we're talking talking about dune specifically i think i've infamously only read the first part uh but I do think Frank Herbert had a lot of these themes in the original book, uh, kind of like you were saying. And um, I don't know. I, I I think it it now is a perfect time to adapt it. And uh, yeah, I, I I would disagree with that in saying that. Like I I think the modern take is very necessary and 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 is kind of like a pretty true to the original book. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, we got to always think the context matters and no one is ever speaking from some sort of neutral objective perspective. We're always going to take our own personal stories. And then of course the kind of material conditions in which we find ourselves as we translate our ideas onto the page. And so, you know, of course the contemporary political, socio-political, socio-economic, political, economic landscape is going to have some sort of impact on how we understand colonialism and how we understand imperialism and how we understand First Nations peoples and the struggle for um, uh, freedom, autonomy, etc. from underneath uh, these kind of oppressive forces of, of Western colonial and imperial interests. So I think that there's always going to be a sense in which there's a modification, but that doesn't mean that there aren't nascent ideas that kind of are like the germ, the germination, you know, the seeds um, that are there that just kind of flower in different directions. Whereas if this film were made, you know, in the 60s, it would have had different flourishes, different emphases, right? Whereas in 2021, it's going to be a bit more aware in light of us living in a 
post-colonial um, or at least where post-coloniality and anti-coloniality is something that is at the forefront of a lot of our um, attentions. So yeah, absolutely context matters, but that doesn't kind of like mean that it's like an unfaithful in- interpretation. Yeah, go ahead, Ray. I was just going to say at the beginning of your response, though, you, you brought up the uh, the difference in perspectives and uh, and, yeah. and how that's always going to affect the stories that we tell. And I I think that's as good a place as any to tie it back to marriage story. You know, this mm. is a, a, a movie uh, just as much as any movie is about uh, two people not being able to see eye to eye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, okay, you know what? Real quick, I'm going to jump into a, an email, and this will be the last thing, and then we'll head out. Again, if you want to call us, you can call us, and you can leave us a voicemail. Thanks so much for that thought-provoking question, Trey. one 2 one 3 or you can email us, movies at wisecrack.co. And just real quick, we're going to read something from Eduardo on Dune. Hey, SMTM team, this is Eduardo from Washington, D.C. I enjoyed your episode on Dune, and even thought, even though I was a huge fan of the movie, and I'm also a huge fan of the book, I appreciated hearing your different takes as you might famously remember ryan hated the film and raymond was like a 2.5 right down the middle with his take on i think i was i I give it a gentleman six i up it to a three (laughs) i do i do respect the craftsmanship i'm just i'm just not that invested in the story and yeah chat Don't come for me again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Eduardo says, I was surprised you didn't bring up the possible Oedipal stuff that was in the movie. I know in the past you guys have talked about the Oedipal, Oedipal subtext a fair amount on the podcast, and I thought there was definitely some strange tension between Jessica and Paul. What do we think about this? Um, was there some interesting Oedipal confusion, complexity uh, in, in this story? I didn't think Kirsten, about it. You've, my, you've my, seen it twice. My girl, Austin, my girl I thought did. you were going to say the, the tension between uh, me and Ryan on the last episode. <laughs> well, that one definitely. I thought there was more of like an erotic tension between Paul and Duncan than anything. I thought that was the re- that's the romantic relationship that everybody wanted to see turn into something. But my girl did turn to me at one point and she was like, how old is this actress that is playing his mother? And we looked and like they're only like 12 years apart in actual age or like 15 years apart. I think she's like 37, 38. And he's like, what, 25 or something like that? So it's like, you know, it's, but I think he's playing like a teenager and she's playing like, you know, mid 30s. So they were like young, I guess. So I was kind of a little bit, but I don't know. Maybe it's just because when people see pretty people on screen, they want them to hook up. Um, I don't know what the deal is. And you're, you're still tuning in for uh, my own private Duncan <laughs> Idaho. That was uh, the movie you wanted to see, right? I want to see it. I want to see it. So, okay, we'll go ahead and wrap up there. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in so much. Again, you can follow us on Twitter, SMTM underscore POD. You can email us. You can call us. Make sure to check out our other podcasts. we got Culture Binge and Squanch, et cetera, et cetera. Karsten, where can people find you on the internet, brother? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Runquist Karsten, or you can find me on YouTube at just Karsten Runquist, just my name. Or uh, also shout out to my podcast, Karscast. Uh, Sick. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Done, done, done. Yeah, yeah. thanks for coming Thank on, Thank you man. so we much really for joining us, it. man. This was a pleasure. Yeah. And Raymond, what about you, man? Where can people find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. Uh, I had the pleasure of directing a new Wisecrack video that went live at the end of October called Loving Horror Movies and Horrible Times. Uh, we're really proud of it. So uh, if you haven't watched that yet, give it a give it a click. And Carson, I totally forgot to ask you if we can just open up <laughs> one brief conversation before we sign off. You did a great video essay about the importance of overacting. Um, where where do you think oh. this movie falls on that continuum? Do you think it ever edges towards overacting, or is this always uh, firmly on the ground for you? I think it's firmly on the ground. I that is I didn't I didn't even realize that this movie has a lot of that. But no, I I, I don't think anyone's everyone's in the right. Uh, what's the <laughs> there's there's okay. no there's no Nicolas Cage level outbursts in this no 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 it would be a different movie with fair enough Cage. but if you haven't seen that that's another <laughs> great video essay uh, I'd highly recommend it thank you awesome and I'm Austin Hayden you can find me on Twitter you can find me on Insta also just a reminder that if you want to you can support us on Patreon patreon.com slash wisecrack Raymond and I did a chat last week where we actually talked about the philosophy of acting and what makes good acting who are good actors etc etc and just if you want to know too uh, Raymond thinks that Charlie Chaplin is a talentless hack so you know that was just something you keep trying to get me in trouble for this but that little twerp can suck my fucking dick I hate Charlie Chaplin alright send us out of here Raymond Goodbye from uh, Los Angeles, but maybe New York, and I I swear to God, if I have to move to Los Angeles, I'm not going to be happy about it. It showed me the meaning.